With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning here on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, applications are available for the California Ag Leadership Program Class 54. And I talk with one of President Biden's climate advisors about the decision to pause exports of liquid natural gas. That's all coming up later on the show, but we start today with Brian German. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid Abe Isaac joins us today to highlight how good nutrition can help make the most of the recent rainfall. Plants drink, they do not eat. So using that moisture to get plant nutrition into it is the only way that you can get it into the plant. One of the things that we need to do is make sure that we can get good water penetration into that soil. And there are a number of issues that can hinder that. And there are a lot of things that you can do to help increase that and make it much more efficient. So one of the things that we do is by applying humic acids with your fertilizers as well, that will help hold more moisture in that soil. We do that uh, in all, all of AgriLiquid's products. There's some, there's some carbon in there with it. But whenever a, a grower puts nitrogen down, and does things like that, mixing some humic acid with it, a 1% solution in with it, really helps. It also feeds the microbial activity that's in that soil that helps open that ground up. So that is one good way. I don't know if people understand this, but uh, humic acid will hold 25 times its molecular weight in moisture. So if you get a really sandy situation, uh, you can hold a lot more moisture in that ground by adding humic acid and uh, keeping things available to that plant. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce is calling on Ottawa to step up defense of Canada's trade interests with the November's U.S. presidential election drawing closer, especially with the upcoming six-year review of the USMCA trade pact in 2026. Dennis Guy reports. Adding to cross-border trade concerns is the Canadian federal election, scheduled for next year. The Trudeau Liberals, who have ruled in Ottawa now for 10 years, are seeing growing support for Canada's Conservatives, led by a far more right-wing-minded Pierre Polyev. Canadians have been closely watching the initial steps leading up to this year's presidential election, following former President Trump's strong results in the New Hampshire primary on the heels of the Iowa caucus. Prime Minister Trudeau was quick to respond to upcoming USMCA review concerns. One of the really important things for any Canadian government is to continue to work constructively with whatever American administration is in place. There's no question that Mr. Trump represents a certain amount of unpredictability, but we made it through the challenges represented by the Trump administration for four years where we put forward the fact that Canada and the U.S. do best when we're well integrated, when we recognize the prosperity that's created on both sides of the border. When former President Trump threatened to terminate the long-standing NAFTA agreement, months of intense negotiations eventually landed the existing USMCA, which came into force in 2020. The first six-year review of the deal will happen in 2026, and if there is no consensus by all three parties at that time, a self-destruct mechanism would be triggered and the trade deal would expire 10 years later. Laura Dawson is the executive director of the Future Borders Coalition. 
Dawson says that all U.S. trade-invested countries are watching the progress of this year's American presidential election, but she says election outcome stakes are highest for Canada. The U.S. and Canadian trade supply chains are by far the most intertwined. Generally, a Biden administration re-election is favored by about two-thirds of polled Canadians. Conversely, Laura Dawson says the USMCA Trade Pact review taking place in a second Trump presidency has most Canadians very concerned. I think Trump too is Trump one on steroids. The thing that saved us in the first time around was Donald Trump's inexperience and the fact that he surrounded himself with relatively moderate Republicans able to tap Trump on the shoulder and identify the areas where hurting Canada would hurt the United States. Free trade, internationalist Republicans, those folks are gone from the picture. Laura Dawson is the executive director of the Future Borders Coalition. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. If you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. It's available for both Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's National Spotlight, here's Cindy Zimmerman. Okay, Brian, if you would first of all introduce yourself to me, please. Brian Lutz, I uh, lead our farming solutions and digital organization at Corteva AgriScience. Well, Corteva is the title sponsor here at the Vision Conference, and you just uh, gave the keynote address here on day two for uh, on exploring cross-industry synergies to enable the ag tech revolution. Your main thing was enabling technology versus solutions. Explain the difference between an enabling technology versus a solution. Yeah, so, you know, I think we're at a pretty unique uh, point of the history of ag tech or the evolution of, of ag tech. And it really comes down to this point of, you know, what are the enabling technologies that we have and, and how mature and effective are those enabling technologies? By that, I mean things like artificial intelligence, uh, data and data infrastructure capabilities, sensors, connectivity, satellites, UAVs. And when you think about it, we have a, uh, you know, just a tremendously effective uh, arsenal of tools at our disposal. But right now with ag tech, I think our big challenge is, is how do we figure out how to package up those technologies into solutions that add clear and demonstrable value for customers and for the ag value chain. And so I think really the, the point that I wanted to sort of emphasize with the group was, are we pushing ourselves as hard as we can to really think about the ultimate value delivery and are the solutions right? Because it's certainly not the enabling technologies right now that are limiting us because we have some really effective uh, tools at our disposal. We had a great comparison here in the development of tractors compared to the development of generative AI. Give us a kind of a summary of that. Yeah, so, you know, and I think that that really underscores this idea, the difference between a solution and an enabling capability. Tractors are solutions. They're comprised of many different enabling capabilities, but tractors solve a problem for farmers, and and uh, they're, they're a product that farmers are, uh, you know, completely dependent on now, really, for modern ag production. 
Generative AI, on the other hand, is an enabling uh, capability. It's a technology. Um, nobody asks, you know, can I just have some more generative AI? Uh, we're putting that into products and solutions. Both of them are really profound. Generative AI is a profound technology. Tractors are incredible solutions that enable farmers. But we can't blur the lines between what's a solution that delivers value versus what's a technology that can be brought together to ultimately deliver uh, solutions for customers. Talk a little bit about Corteva. Um, Corteva is a, a new name, relatively, what, five years old maybe, I guess, and one of the four majors. But how have you, how has Corteva changed yep. in the last five years? So Corteva is, uh, it's a remarkable company. You know, there's been a lot of change uh, within the, the ag tech, or within the agricultural space and with the majors. Um, you know, Corteva is the largest uh, standalone multinational seed and crop protection company, and it's also based here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we... Uh, uh, one of the exciting parts about uh, Corteva is even though it's a new company and uh, it's still, you know, a company that a lot of folks are still learning the name, mm-hmm. it's got a deep history. So, I mean, it's uh, out of, you know, the the uh, legacy uh, DuPont Pioneer, DuPont and, and Dow AgriScience companies coming together. So we've got a rich agricultural history with a, with a whole new uh, brand and image that, that we're developing. And I would say specifically at this time, and especially as we bring all of these pieces together, it's a really exciting time to infuse ag tech into the future of companies and the future of our company because um, ag tech is really that catalyst, that enabler that's going to help us to d- develop a lot more value um, on the seed and crop production side of the business. Well, why is it so important for Kateva to be, you know, the premier sponsor of, of this event? This has been a fantastic event. Um, you know, it's events like these where I do think uh, ag tech is, again, it's, ag tech is going to be the uh, sort of keystone or center pin for a lot of acceleration and ag value creation. Um, coming to events like this is an uh, opportunity to cross paths with folks that we might not see at other meetings. I've had a phenomenal number of conversations that have just been great with folks that I wouldn't normally get to see, but are thinking about ag tech from a variety of angles. It really helps uh, us shape the way we're thinking about this and also understand how do we partner and collaborate more broadly across the space. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Here at the Vision Conference in Glendale, Arizona, I'm Cindy Zimmerman. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, completing his first market visit to Hong Kong since pandemic restrictions were lifted, U.S. Meat Export Federation President and CEO Dan Hallstrom reports growing opportunity in the Asian market. USMEF's John Harris has more. U.S. Meat Export Federation President and CEO Dan Hallstrom just made a market visit to Hong Kong, where he says the food service sector, which had been decimated by COVID-19 restrictions, is gradually rebounding. Just returned from my first trip to Hong Kong since the COVID years. And uh, without a doubt, the market in Hong Kong, as it was in China, was was simply decimated at food service level. So it was encouraging to see a rebound that was, uh, it's definitely started. The business is not back to normal yet, but, but you can see some definite improvements on the food service side, especially on U.S. beef products. 
A lot of people think Hong Kong and China are the same. They're two different markets, and uh, Hong Kong is a legitimate market in and of itself. We have data through 11 months. We'll have December here in a few weeks, but we're going to be over $400 million in U.S. beef export to Hong Kong. So a significant market, a significant value-added market with a lot of high-end products like the, like the U.S. Wagyu cuts going in there as well. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. In other livestock news, a look at the USDA January milk production and price forecast. USDA's Rod Bain has more. What were the major changes month over month in USDA's January milk production and price forecast? According to World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski. Reduced our U.S. milk production forecasts for both 2023 and 2024. Reflecting. Both lower inventories and slower growth in milk per cow. Lower imports, higher exports are expected for both cheap and butter. Global prices are generally strong and rising. U.S. prices have been showing some strength as well, but not rising quite to the extent of the global prices. So that's giving us some opportunities to export more and import less. 2024 product prices were adjusted up based on lower milk production forecast, with cheese prices the exception. A projected Class 4 milk price increase month over month was offset by a lower Class 3 price, resulting in the all-milk price lowered by a quarter to 20 cents per pound. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. California certified organic farmers will be leading a trade mission to Mexico in June in collaboration with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. CCOF is inviting representatives from companies involved in organic specialty crop production who are interested in exporting or expanding exports to Mexico. Eligibility criteria include the ability and willingness to travel to Guadalajara and Mexico City from June 17th through the 21st, current exporting or genuine interest and capacity to export organic specialty crops to Mexico, business affiliation with a California-based specialty crop production company, and sufficient funding to cover airfare and some meals. The delegation will cover hotels, in-country transportation, and some meals through a USDA specialty crop grant. More information about the trade mission is available at ccof.org. U.S. dairy producers are utilizing genomic science to enhance their herd's genetic potential for milk production, health, and operational efficiency. Since the availability of genomic testing in 2008, over 8 million U.S. dairy animals have been genotyped for various genetic traits. The investment in genomics has significantly contributed to a 19.2% increase in milk production and a 32.2% rise in butterfat levels, despite the U.S. dairy herd growing by only 1% since 2008. The CoBank's Knowledge Exchange report highlights the sustainability impact of genomic adoption, noting that fewer cows are needed to produce the same amount of milk, resulting in reduced methane production, a smaller carbon footprint, and improved resource efficiency. The report suggests that genomics has enormous potential to further reduce methane production and enhance the sustainability of dairy operations in the future. Farmers and ranchers are encouraged to plan for the future, which may involve setting up a trust. 
Trust and estate attorney Polly Dobbs highlighted some of the things producers will want to keep in mind. They need to keep it flexible. And what they need to know is the trust they're creating should be customized to fit their family, their assets, their goals. Almost every farmer I talk to has heard a horror story about a trust that went wrong in another family. And so they don't want anything to do with the trust. And the thing to keep in mind is this is your trust and it needs to be customized and it needs to be flexible. Something I should add is talking to other growers in your region. So probably not your town, probably maybe not your county, because at a certain point, the bigger your operation gets, the more your land value appreciates, you outgrow your local advisors. And that's just the natural progression of things. The California Rice Commission's activated the online submission platform for farm evaluation and nitrogen management plans. Rice growers are required to submit these plans to the CRC every five years under the Central Valley Water Board Waste Discharge Requirement. The farm evaluation provides information on growers' implementation of the order's requirements, and CRC will compile the data for submission to the Water Board. The Nitrogen Management Plan serves as a tool for growers to manage nitrogen applications, and information submitted to the CRC is not disclosed to the board. Plans also require a nitrogen use forecast and other data for the upcoming 2024 growing season, with submission using the grower's unique ID number at the County Ag Commissioner's Office. Information reported to the board will be in township format without grower or parcel identification. The deadline for data submission is March 1st, with more information available at calricenews.org. Applications are now open for Class 54 of the California Agricultural Leadership Program. The program seeks mid-career individuals in California's agriculture industry, including growers, farmers, ranchers, horticulturalists, and foresters. CALP is considered to be one of the premier leadership development experiences in the United States. The 17-month program offers an intensive curriculum covering leadership theory, effective communication, motivation, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, and more. Participants engage in discussions on social and cultural issues, building critical thinking skills for creative problem-solving. California Agricultural Leadership Foundation President and CEO Dwight Ferguson emphasizes the program's focus on selecting fellows committed to California agriculture. Interested candidates are encouraged to apply by April 17th at agleaders.org slash class 54 apply. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. The severe cold isn't just hard on humans and plants. It can hurt our pets, too. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Many people think dogs are not very sensitive to super cold conditions. Wrong. Just like cold can be dangerous for us, it absolutely can be for them, too, even the winter-hardy breeds. Especially when combined with wind and snow and icing conditions. USDA veterinarian Dr. Don Fitzhugh. Even the furriest of animals, that wind comes along and it can separate their hair and get right down, down to their skin and make them feel super chilled. And so... The wind chill can be dangerous for them, just like it is for us. Dogs can even suffer from frostbite, especially around the ears. Don says also if you walk your dog on snowy or icy surfaces, chunks of ice can sometimes wedge in there between the dog's paw pads. And that can be really painful for them. And so if the dog limps or refuses to walk, that might be the reason. Or it might be the dog is just too cold, maybe suffering from hypothermia, especially if the dog is shivering. Fitzhugh says that's when we need to get that dog out of the cold into someplace warm and dry. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. 
USDA recently announced a pilot program designed to grade beef cuts and carcasses remotely. Rod Bain reports. It is a familiar symbol to consumers at the meat counter of grocery stores and retail centers. USDA grade marks are used to communicate quality of products. In this particular case, we're talking about beef. You go to the grocery store, you see USDA Prime, USDA Choice. That is an indicator of what sort of eating experience that you should expect from that product. That nomenclature is used broadly, not just domestically, but overseas to communicate that up and down the value chain. Yet as Jennifer Porter of USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service points out, what many customers may not realize is... This is a user fee service, so it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So larger packing plants and processing facilities have economies of scale working for them to utilize this grading service. For smaller sized operations, there are challenges to bringing a grader on board. Because it's a user fee driven program, they also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight hour a day cadence, that's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. That is where a new USDA pilot program comes in tested at about 20 packing facilities in 2023 as part of a feasibility study before piloting, grading is done remotely. Once the plant is ready to actually do some grading, what they do is capture video and photos and transmit those to us and a USDA grader has been evaluating them remotely. Plants using remote grading pay only for the time spent by the USDA grader, several minutes versus an eight-hour shift on-site. This would in turn provide cost savings for participating packers while assuring quality for their products and opportunity to use the USDA grade on their meats as a value-added opportunity. Porter says AMS will study and monitor during the pilot program. How does this look for facilities that maybe operate at different scale? Are the technical components relevant? Are there ways that we can improve the oversight component to make sure that the integrity of the grade mark is still intact? Because that remains a paramount focus for us. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. New breakthroughs in sustainable aviation fuel production technology could bring new hope for struggling farmers and rural communities. Gary Crawford has more. Each year, an alarming number of farms and rural businesses go out of business, but... This project, this industry, provides a ray of hope to reverse that trend. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, the project and industry he's talking about is the conversion of ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel. He was in Soberton, Georgia Wednesday for the grand opening of... The world's first ethanol to sustainable aviation fuels plant. Meg Whitty, vice president of the Lanza Jet Company, the company that built the facility, Tom Vilsack says if things go as planned, there could be plants like this all across the country generating a lot of demand for the feedstock to make the ethanol. There need to be and ought to be multiple feedstocks uh, in order to, for this market opportunity to be available uh, all over the United States, not just in 
one or two regions of the country. Bill Sachs says the sustainable aviation fuel industry could bring new jobs for rural residents, new markets for farmers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack gives us his personal take on why developing the sustainable aviation fuels industry is important. It's not just about an industry, a new industry, as important as it is. It's not just, Dave, about the environment and taking on that climate change as globally important as it is. For me, in the position I have, the experiences I've had in representing farmers and understanding them, this is about creating the opportunity for folks to do what they love to do and to pass it on to the next generation. And in doing so, preserve and protect a value system that's critically important to our national security and to our very essence. That's Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. The National Association of State Departments of Agriculture set the organization's primary areas of policy focus for 2024. NASDA CEO Ted McKinney says a new farm bill is at the top of their priority list. The primary piece of legislation that supports farmers and ranchers, supports those who need nutrition, but also brings along a lot of the structure for how industry is regulated. So, of course, we're going to be very involved because we are co-regulators in our state. Most people think that EPA, FDA, USDA are the regulators, and they are. But most people don't know that a lot, I dare say most of the regulations that are instituted by Congress and then shaped by those agencies, it's all handed off to state departments of ag. So we take a great deal of interest in shaping those properly because we say with pride, we're the closest to that farmer, that rancher, that processor. So you bet we're going to be involved in any number of areas. McKinney is still holding out hope that a farm bill gets done this year. I'll start by saying I tend to be a bit more on the optimistic side. Life's pretty miserable if you're always negative. I think there is still a chance, but as every day goes by without getting the appropriations part done, notwithstanding, I think, a strong desire to get to Farm Bill, you just lose floor time in Congress. Our view is that we really need to get this done by March and April. We know that the leadership of both the House and Senate Ag Committee want to do that, but it's floor time that's become coming the pinch point now. One overlooked area of the farm bill that NASDA is pushing for is improving agricultural research. We're putting a real push on the need for funding for research. It's important people say that, but gosh, the last two farm bills, it's been six out of five in priorities, 11th out of 10. And man, are we falling behind on the international stage in terms of our support for ag research. We can't always leave that to the corporations. Another aspect that needs improvement is agricultural trade, he says. We're lifting up international trade, and for sure, the current administration's paying some attention to that. But the complete walk away from what I've always known as a free trade agreement and the focus on market access, which is largely bringing tariffs down, has just been vacated. There's no attention at all being paid to that. We're lifting up trade policy. Again, NASDA CEO Ted McKinney. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Friday morning, the Biden administration announced a temporary pause on pending decisions of liquefied natural gas exports, or LNG, with the exception of unanticipated and immediate national security emergencies. The announcement said that during this period, they will take a hard look at the impacts of LNG exports on energy costs, America's energy security, and the environment. 
Now, within a few hours of that announcement, a group of Republican senators sent a letter to President Biden and Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. CC'd on that letter was Ali Zaidi, assistant to the president and national climate advisor. I talked with Zaidi on Friday to get more information about the decision and why it was made. That is today's featured interview. Can you tell me a little bit about the announcement and why this decision was made? The Department of Energy, um, on a routine basis, uh, updates the analysis, the economic and environmental analysis that it uses to make decisions about exports of U.S. LNG to countries around the world, in particular non-free trade agreement countries. Um, Given what um, has already been approved, uh, given the fact that the U.S. is already um, the number one exporter of LNG, um, and the climate imperative uh, to make sure we're really understanding what are the impacts uh, of this from a climate perspective, as well as the imperative to get this right for our consumers, for our communities, Uh, looking at energy costs, looking at burdens on frontline folks. Um, The department is taking a pause uh, and going to take that hard look, um, make sure the analysis is up to date so that they're making the best decisions on behalf of the American people. So almost immediately, there was a letter put out by um, 25 or so Republican senators, and I do want to point out that it was a very partisan letter going against this decision and saying that it's uh, um, that it could have some significant economic, environmental, and national security consequences. Do you have have a response to those allegations? Look, the purpose of the DOE uh, pause is to make sure that we're digging in to the potential impacts of continued approvals. Uh, There are already approvals um, that um, uh, will uh, quadruple the amount of exports that are um, already underway. Um, And so the department is being responsible Uh, And before it continues to approve, um, taking a look at what the implications are. You know, you cited the letter that you cited. I flag for you um, that we've got um, manufacturers in this country, uh, uh, folks who represent uh, thousands of facilities nationwide, who've said, hey, we want you to take a look at the implications of these approvals for costs here in the United States. Um, you've got scientists who said, hey, we want you to take a look uh, to make sure the best science is being integrated into the decision-making. Um, you've got frontline communities who are raising uh, concerns and saying, hey, we want you to better understand what this means. The Department of Energy is being responsive to all the stakeholders by having an open process that allows people to provide input, uh, and then they'll update the analysis and make decisions based on that. And let's talk about what exactly a pause is. This is not. This was not a decision saying we're ending this completely. What does the pause mean? It means that while the department is updating its economic and environmental analysis, um, it will not be approving um, or denying these applications uh, to export gas from the United States um, to non-free trade countries uh, overseas. Um, during that period. You've twice have have made sure to specify that they are non-free trade countries. Um, Why is that important? Because that's the authority that the Department of Energy has. 
Um, so just want to be very clear uh, about the authority that they have uh, on which they're exercising this um, discretion. How long does the analysis usually take, or how long could it take? I don't want to speculate about that. What I know is that the department uh, intends to move expeditiously. Um, they want to invite um, really expertise from uh, a variety of uh, quarters, sectors, make sure people have the opportunity to input into that um, to provide public comment. Um, and uh, once that's completed um, in a matter of months, uh, then um, uh, you'll see uh, the department be able to apply that updated analysis to future decisions. So coming from your perspective for climate and for trying to improve the climate, looking at these these issues so closely and, and taking a moment to pause and to do full analysis, what does this mean for the, or I shouldn't say does, but what could this mean for climate and for improving the climate? Well, I think at a time when um, the climate crisis is showing up in communities all across the United States and around the world, um, it's really important for us um, when we don't understand the full implications of what something uh, that the government is doing uh, results in, um, that we uh, take a step back um, and uh, we take a hard look. So after the analysis is done, is there public record of this? Is this something that people can go into and look and see for themselves what results were you know, found? Yeah, the department would be uh, would be sharing what the what the results of, of that uh, analytical update would be at the end of the process. Mm-hmm. So, in, in again, in your opinion, what is the most important aspect of this announcement that was made this morning? I think what's important is that um, after uh, a number of years, uh, the Department of Energy is recognizing how much the world has changed, um, uh, how um, the nature of um, the market uh, the science behind all of this is evolving um, and doing the right thing, uh, you know, notwithstanding special interests, uh, acting to make sure they uh, really are attentive to the public interest um, and, uh, and taking the time uh, to update their analysis. That's, that's, that is important. I really should ask, when was the last time that, that it was updated? Uh, for a lot of these analyses, uh, they're uh, about five years old. And how much can change in five years? A lot. (laughs) I mean, yeah, a lot can change in five years. I want to say thank you to Ollie Zadie, Assistant to President Biden and National Climate Advisor. This is the Agnet News Hour. I am Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Brian German finishes up today's news. We're finishing up our conversation with Jessica Samler today, BASF Tech Service Representative. And now, Jessica, you'd previously explained uh, soil nutrients as being somewhat like a multivitamin in in people and helping uh, prepare trees for the season. And uh, with that analogy, uh, hydration is also important in people. And so uh, what role is water going to play in in irrigation uh, in preparing almond trees for bloom? Are there any uh, maybe management practices that are recommended? I know last year uh, California was dealing with quite a bit more water than was normal. Normally anticipated, but uh, what kind of strategy or management practices there uh, will will help with some of that water and irrigation needs of those trees? Yeah, so um, you know, trees obviously they need water to survive. Although too much is is a bad thing. Um, same can be said for us. Proper irrigation is 
very important throughout the season. But I think even more importantly during bloom is to consider that blossoms in themselves are these humid little microclimates. It occurs within the blossom. So even if we end up having a dry spring, you still have enough moisture within that blossom. Um, there's enough nutrients and it provides uh, the perfect environment for diseases to proliferate within that blossom. Uh, so whether it's a dry spring, whether it's a wet spring, um, hopefully not as wet as last year, but either way, there is typically enough moisture right inside that little blossom um, for all of these bloom time diseases to really take hold. So we need to be proactive and and not think, oh, it's drier. Uh, maybe I don't have to treat. Maybe I don't, you know, I can wait a little bit longer. Um, and on the flip side, of course, if we get a really wet spring like we saw last year, then we definitely know that there is more than enough moisture out there. And, you know, we're definitely going to have heavy disease pressure in that in that situation. And now staying on the conversation of diseases, which diseases in particular pose the uh, the greatest threat to trees at that bloom stage? So typically we are talking about diseases like anthracnose, um, monolinia, also called brown rot. That is a big one. Uh, the jacket rot complex, which is um, multiple diseases that all work hand in hand. Um, and then leaf blight. All of these can occur at bloom. There are also others, but those are probably the major for and um, that it's recommended to treat for and that bloom timing is the best time to treat for those diseases. They typically attack the flowers and that of course reduces your yield potential because your flowers turn into uh, the nuts that are harvested. But some of those diseases like brown rot or monolinia, uh, if it's not adequately controlled, it can move from the blossom into the woody tissue. Um, and now you're combating a wood disease, which is 10 times harder to treat effectively um, versus just controlling it when it's still external and on the blossoms. And now continuing a little bit with some of those um, disease management approaches there, uh, growers are also going to be dealing with pests as well. And so um, how does an integrated approach to addressing both of those things, how does that contribute to um, maintaining, uh, you know, healthy blossoms during bloom and ultimately um, some, some better yield for growers there? Yeah, an innovative approach absolutely gives you the strongest chance of success to keep both your pests and your diseases controlled. It's going to reduce any chance of resistance taking hold and becoming a problem. Um, and it, at the end of the day, will maximize your yield potential. And we have so many tools available to us. Um, we have strong, effective fungicides like Maravon. Um, that mitigate stress. We also need to make sure that we're rotating our frat groups as well. You don't want to keep using um, the same active ingredient or the same um, active ingredient class, mode of action class. You don't want to use those back to back because that can cause future problems down the road. It can lead to resistance buildup. So anything that we can do, whether it is from a chemical pest management standpoint, whether it is cultural practices um, such as good sanitation, uh, during the winter that helps reduce your pest population later on in the season. All of these things are critically important uh, to making sure that we are being good stewards of the crop, but also that we're maximizing the yield we can get at the end of the season. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. 
You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.